Hi everyone, the uh, growing pains of a new podcaster, time and equipment constraints being what they are, there were a little bit of issues with audio for this particular episode and I am really sorry if it sounds like I might be either spitting on you or there is like a big wind in the background. Just so you know, going in, it does sound a bit like I might be in some sort of a wind tunnel. Welcome back, everyone, to It's All Relative, the show where we talk about murder and crime in the family. I'm Kaylee, your host, and this is episode three of Virginia McGinnis and Great God Ganesh. I hope this is the last one. This woman has no shame, and I'm she's getting on my nerves. I am going to kick this off with the highly appropriate Steve Miller Band song, Take the Money and Run. of you that have been listening to this podcast for the short time I have been broadcasting it probably think I'm going to have a compassionate explanation of Virginia, of her actions, of her motivations. I do have one, but for some reason, I just don't care. This woman just twists my sympathy into antipathy. People say her gimmick was to act the sweet middle-aged mom, but I think she radiates smarm. Look her up, seriously. I almost need a shower after dealing with her swill for this long. Ugh. Virginia was raised in, at best, a shitty home, and for that I am actually really, really sorry. Her brother was caught molesting her, and though we only have one instance of somebody reporting this, pretty sure that probably happened more than once. Her mother slept around town and pretended to be from high society, probably because she couldn't stand the reality of her life that stared her in the face every moment of every day. Her father was definitely a control freak who could be very cruel, and God only knows what else he did when nobody was looking. With this background, it is patently obvious, and yes, I hate that phrase, why Virginia resorted to theft and sex. I can even come up with a plausible and sympathetic reason for her to burn down her father's barn. She was lashing out. And I have no proof of this. I only have my educated, yet still only gut feeling, that at some point, Virginia made a conscious decision to cultivate a life course, where other people were mooks, Yes, that's a dated word, look it up. And family is full of the biggest chumps of them all. If only to prove my point, I did a bit of re-research. And you know how last episode I said that between the deaths of Bud and Mary Agnes, there were no known suspected criminal acts committed by Virginia? Well, I rescinded that. There was. Now, no one died that we know of, but I will mention the weird things that started to happen after Ginger moved into her California neighborhood. So be on guard for that. Coming up. I find it really interesting on a neurological slash psychological scale how she only killed quote-unquote family. For instance, we can't be even sure that Cynthia Elaine is her biological child. Remember that episode of her trying to buy a child at one point? Technically that was her grandchild, but in any event, we don't know if that was her actual biological child, but she definitely made that claim. And in order to kill Dina, she made her her quote-unquote daughter-in-law. To be. This fucking woman. She's not even good at crime. But the thing is, she's a weasel. She knows she doesn't have to be perfect. She just needs to not push whatever she does to the point where people will actually make an effort. She appears to the general laziness of the population. Like, hmm, 
This seems suspicious, but it's such an effort to look into it. Uh, just let it go. Just pay the claim or whatever the situation happens to be. At this point, we have gotten not only to the death of Dina Wilde, Virginia's daughter-in-law-to-be, but Bobby Roberts, Dina's mother, and Steve Keeney, Bobby's lawyer, have come to the conclusion that Virginia and her husband BJ had killed Dina for a $35,000 payout on a life insurance policy. And we have, yet again, people who find it easier to just not make an effort to do their fucking jobs. Jeff Mason interviewed Virginia and BJ, and they said they heard nothing when Dina fell. No one falls silently. Seriously, even if there is no scream, this particular cliff was more of a slope, and there would have been the sound of falling rocks, a body scraping down the soil, and the scree. The McGinnises also said they had gone immediately to call the police, yet photos Virginia took and sent to Dina's mother would later prove they'd hung around to take shots of the scenery. They said they'd seen Dina's body, which other responders stated was not possible. They also said they had no knowledge of any life insurance policies on Dina. Mason did not take any photos because Virginia said she'd seen the ones she'd already taken. Those same ones she sent to Bobby Roberts. She never did. Where are the witness statements? The signed witness statements. Nope, don't exist. Additionally, the McGinnises also said they'd originally stopped at the location to see the sunset, but it had been way too early in the day for that. Mason completed his report, classifying Dina's death as an accident. The autopsy was completed, confirming that her cause of death was a basal skull fracture and that it was consistent with a fall from a cliff. Okay, so this is true? If she had fallen from an actual action movie-style cliff, a basal skull fracture would definitely be a possibility. I'm not ruling it out because I could see how a tumble would also cause a basal skull fracture. But here's the thing. This fracture occurs at the bottom portion of the skull, hence the words basal. That part that connects with your neck, that tends to happen in situations where there is serious force in a relatively particular direction. And this not being a visual media, I can't show you, so you'll just have to take my word for it. Better yet, look it up. In any event, just to illustrate my point, NASCAR racers often die from this. That should tell you what kind of force is involved. So, so if Dina silently went into a tumble down the slope at, at Seal Beach Lookout, okay, this may have happened. This should have at least posed some suspicion. Then, Dina had Ellaville in her system, but there was no mention made of the amount. So, meticulous examination happening here, and no indication was made by any professional investigator that this was odd for a girl that did not have depression, nor even a prescription for the medication. This is not a street drug, people. Deputy Dave Dungan acted as the coroner for this case. And I quote, In spite of Dungan's reassuring conclusion, nothing to even slightly indicate foul play, the report as a whole seems so much like a quick shuffle, it made Keeney sweat. Overall, the coroner's register read more like a travel guide. The area is very beautiful and will make a great photo. Dungan's analysis reminded him of Oliver Wendell Holmes' quip about a fellow Supreme Court Justice, Kentuckian John Harlan. Harlan had a mind like a vice, the jaws of which did not meet. It held only larger objects. This was not how serious cases were treated at BNA, and it was probably not how they were treated in Monterey. It sure would be nice to get this story to hang together, he thought. When Kinney next called Sergeant Brown, he decided to press a little harder. What did the accident scene photos show, he stated. We don't have any. I don't mean to be fussing with you, but isn't it customary to take accident scene photos? 
Mrs. McGinnis promised Dave Dungan she'd send in the photo she took at the scene. Under the circumstances, Dungan decided not to take any of his own. You know, we don't have a set policy about taking them in every case. Out here, people are falling off cliffs like logs. It happens all the time, like snowflakes in a snowstorm. Half of the time, we wouldn't even know what we'd be looking for. Deputy Dave Dungan checked off the box labeled photographs at scene. Yet now it turned out, the only photos taken were the McGinnis' own snapshots. Promised, but not delivered. Dungan's report seemed to amount to, easy come, easy go, file it. The Monterey Sheriff's Office surely didn't want to hear from a would-be prosecutor from the sticks yammering on with a slew of complaints. Sergeant Brown was no doubt correct that people in Monterey are falling off cliffs like logs, and they presumably did know a slip and fall from a homicide when they found one. But Keeney was not, as he liked to say, the last pumpkin off the truck. He would not settle for slothful work in, on behalf of his client, not at least until he learned the whole story. End quote. Let's rewind a bit. Bobby was confused that her daughter would buy life insurance. Remember, Dina was not the sharpest tool in the drawer. No, I am not judging her as a person because of that. By all accounts, she had a heart the size of Australia. Most 20-year-olds don't really think about life insurance, and Dina was certainly not the type to plan for the future. Remember, she eloped with her husband, Jay, and went off to California, only calling her mother after it was over. She also left him to move in with the McGinnises within three months of that elopement. Dina was also easily manipulated because of her low IQ and incredibly trusting nature. The agents at State Farm said that Dina came in with the McGinnises to get the insurance, but she kept quiet. According to them, Dina never said anything while she was there taking out the policy. The main beneficiary, Dina's fiancé-to-be, you know, Virginia's son Jimmy, actually had a tiny window of time to meet Dina because he was in prison for assault and theft, got parole, but was back in jail for a violation very shortly after being paroled. Virginia had to use power of attorney to make him the beneficiary because he was in prison, although I'm not sure why that was necessary. You can make anyone a beneficiary. It's the person who takes the policy out that needs the ID. And anyone who signs as a witness. That's foreshadowing. Like a notary. One ray of hope in this mess. I give a big yay to Don Smythe, sheriff of Monterey County, who agreed with Keeney that the whole thing stank. 16 years in the police and an avid hiker, so he knows the area where Dina fell. He even contacted the server at the restaurant the McGinnises and Dina ate that day to see if she remembered them and remembered anything of note. Unknown, unfortunately, is the answer. Okay, so Virginia, BJ, and Dina go on this trip up California coast to take photos. Virginia never sends those photos to Deputy Dungan, but she does send them to Bobby, and Bobby gives those to Keeney. And these photos end up being probably the most damning items of tangible evidence against Virginia and BJ. In one photo... Dina is posed on a boulder, looking alert and showing off her blue high heels. Then, she is looking sleepy and out of it, with her head on BJ's shoulder. After that, there is BJ and Dina at the edge of the cliff. BJ is turned toward the cliff, his hand on Dina's back. But his head is turned over his shoulder as if something had caught his attention or he was looking for something. Dina is not looking out at the view. Unfortunately, BJ's body is blocking most of her face, but she is turned toward BJ. Then there are three shots of scenery, one to the left of where Dina died, one to the right, and one behind. With all Keeney has suspicion-wise, Keeney gets a second opinion on the autopsy. All he has is the report and the photos, but the pathologist, Barbara Weekly jones 
notices that Dina's hands had scrapes and bruising on the dorsal or back, but not really any on the palms. Her nails were also badly broken. First, this cliff is not the classic mile-long drop straight down that action movies are so fond of. You know, like in Indiana Jones. There is more of a slope going down the mountain. So if someone were to fall, which happens a lot at Big Sur, they usually slide, not plummet. It is certainly possible to have wounds on the backs of her hands. However, if Dina had fallen, the assumption would be that she would be trying to grab onto something to stop her slide, causing scrapes to her palms. So even if there were wounds to her dorsum, she'd also have them on the palms. Here is Dr. Weekly Jones, and this comes from Forensic Files, an episode called Financial Downfall. She's up like this, and she's grabbing hold of the edge. The nails will break off. Well, the same, um, you should have then abrasions on the palmer surface of your hands as you're going down. And she did not have that. All of her injuries are on the back of the hands. Why would someone who slid down a cliff have bruises on the backs of her hands, but virtually no marks on her palms? Dr. Weekly Jones said it was impossible to be sure, but that she had a theory. I think that she was pushed off the cliff and didn't make it, and her hands were stomped on in order to get her to continue her fall off the cliff. Um, but the injuries on her hands were um, more consistent with a struggle or that scenario than, than a simple fall off the cliff. Now, Keeney sent all of this to the Monterey DA, Mike Bartram. Bartram concluded that the case was too circumstantial and declined to prosecute. Allegedly, Bartram was an asshole, worried about any case that he might lose, and worried that it would ruin his career. Politics. Do. Your. Fucking. Job. A frustrated Keeney gets Bobby to record a call to Virginia, which is legal in Kentucky, in the hopes of getting her to incriminate herself. Again, I scoff. <laughs> he doesn't know Ginger Hoffman very well, does he? Bobby kind of wants to drop it at this point. She's tired, and she doesn't want to talk to Virginia. But she does it, and she rocks. So Gamora-level kudos to Bobby. In this call, Virginia does elicit a bit more about Cynthia Elaine and Bud's death, details of which were also inconsistent with the stories she told the investigators, and I use that term lightly, at the time. And I have covered these victims in previous episodes, but this is really the first time Keeney is made aware of them. And Virginia admits that BJ had a prescription for Elevil and suggests Dina may have taken the drug thinking it was aspirin. The pill itself can look like, like a coated aspirin. However, I cannot imagine that the prescription bottle would have been mistaken for an OTC bottle. Virginia also said that Elevil should have given Dina some pep, not made her sleepy. Even though she also said in that same conversation that BJ took it to help him sleep. Virginia's answer about the life insurance policy was also sus. She said that they had gone to increase BJ's policy, and while they were there, Dina had said, I should have one too. What am I, chopped liver? But they would later find out that BJ didn't have any life insurance because he was uninsurable due to his poor health. This is how you say that the poor man had HIV in the 1980s. In addition, the agents remember Virginia saying they were getting a policy on Dina so they could get her a passport for a trip to Mexico. So, one, there's proof Dina came into the office intending to take out a policy, and two, that's not a thing. I would probably make sure I had life insurance before a trip to Mexico, but you do not need it to get a passport or to enter the country. 
Adding to the long do-your-fucking-job list, Keeney sees that the application for Dina's policy was witnessed. He finds out that the McGinnises have a neighbor named Alice Kassane who acts as that witness. So, Keeney contacts her. But Alice says, that's not my signature, and besides, the name there is spelled K-I-S-S-A-I-N. My name is spelled K-I-S-S-A-N-E. Keeney also talks with one Martha Grant, who was charmed when the McGinnises moved in. Virginia was over with flowers and sweet nothings. But then weird stuff started happening. Remember back there when I said there would be a moment you should be on guard for? Well, this is that moment. A car parked in Ginny's driveway just catches on fire. And Martha didn't know this, but there was an insurance payout on that car. Dogs were mysteriously poisoned. Virginia comes over out of the blue and asks if Martha had happened to see anything untoward in her backyard. She didn't say it exactly like that, but Martha felt like she was being grilled, like Virginia may be covering something up. Good thing Miss Martha said no. And whatever else she did in her new Chula Vista neighborhood, she was well known at State Farm. So much so that the father and son agents that Virginia dealt with testified in court that they flagged the policy when they sent it off to be approved, and called the adjuster to lay out their concerns. In court, the approvals department denied any knowledge of this quote-unquote potential murder of the insured, a.k.a. Dina. This delayed the policy, but it was, as we know, approved. And when Virginia came in to pay the first premium on that policy, she said, and this is effective for accidental death, right? Dina was dead by accident the next day, and Virginia was in the day after that, with her arm in a sling, by the way, to claim the money. That sling was never explained. This is a person. Do your fucking job. On that note, State Farm did start an investigation once Virginia tried to make a claim. So after Dina was already dead, which is why Mike Hatch, director of life claims, was calling the police in Monterey and communicating with Keeney. The State Farm investigator actually allegedly told Keeney that the policy never should have been written or approved in the first place. Ultimately, State Farm just decides to default it to court and let a judge decide. Of course, Jimmy gets out of prison early and immediately tries to collect on that policy. Keeney convinces Bobby to file a civil suit against the McGinnis slash Coates for wrongful death to stop any payout and to hopefully get testimony under oath that could be used in criminal court. But no one shows. So Bobby wins by default. But it's a hollow victory because Virginia never pays the money awarded and the ploy to get the probative information failed, which was the important part to begin with. However, Keeney finally realizes that the crime of Dina's death may have come to fruition in Monterey, but it started with the taking out of the policy in San Diego. And the San Diego's DA, Louis Aragon, says, let's prosecute. BJ dies of pneumonia before the trial can commence, which is how you say AIDS in the 1980s. He was actually terrified of testifying because, along with living with Jenny for years and knowing the woman, he suspected that she had been trying to poison him. Virginia is brought to trial in January of 1992. Dina died in April of 1997. So getting to this point has taken almost five years. And the main propellant moving things forward is a lawyer who's supposed to be practicing high finance corporate law. Unfortunately, the judge in this case says Virginia's past alleged crimes 
are not admissible. They are too prejudicial and have not been proven in a court of law. Witnesses against Virginia are scared. Remember BJ? Well, they have to seriously convince Debbie to testify. Debbie, who was with Jimmy and Ronnie smoking weed the night Bud Reardon died? Well, now she's raising Jimmy's son on her own. She's carrying around a gun for protection in fear that the Coates brothers will show up to stop her from testifying. Keeney himself has been warned by law enforcement who know the Coates brothers to keep an eye out for them coming by. Dick Coates, you know, Virginia's first husband, while legitimately sick, suspiciously commits suicide right before the trial. His mother says it was due to his illness. But even with defense witnesses, including Jimmy Coates himself, ugh, trying to paint Dina as a drug addict who would take anything in pill form, and a sly legal team on Virginia's side, Keeney took this case to the right county. The judge actually makes history by deciding the court needs to see the actual crime scene. So they all go 400 miles north to Seal Beach Lookout to continue the trial for several days on the actual spot where Dina died. Like, outside. And Virginia gets life. No parole. And she dies in prison in June of 2011. And I'm done with her. God, this woman. Ugh. Don't want to think about her anymore. What's next? I'm not sure. I have some things in the works, but all in various stages of doneness. So it will be a bit of a surprise to you and me both next time. Guys, it looks like I have some extra time here today. And that gives me some room to do some things that I should have been doing all along. But I haven't been doing because I am only human and a broken one at that. So I am going to start giving kudos to podcasts that I listen to because they deserve promotion. And I am going to try to start to uh, give resources for people that recognize any of these criminal or psychological problems within their life. I'm going to start trying to give resources to those people where they can go and try to solve that problem or at least start investigators on the way to solving that problem. So first I want to give a big thank you to True Crime Creepers. It is a podcast where two lovely women discuss cases on a pretty much weekly basis. One of them knows all about the crime. She's a true crime fanatic and the other one knows absolutely nothing. Although at this point she has gotten pretty good at this stuff. The two of them together actually discuss these crimes fairly well in depth. It's rather interesting. And granted, Mogab is hilarious. So totally worth your time. And I am thanking them particularly for their episode on Dina Wild, which helped me put my stuff together and figure out in what order I wanted to lay everything out. You can find True Crime Creepers pretty much anywhere you get your podcasts. So give them a listen. And on the crime side of these things, if you see anything that you and of yourself feel like someone is trying to manipulate you, never, ever, ever take that as a, you know, as a, well, I just might be overreacting because things like that can harm you. They can harm other people. And it's always better to be safe than sorry. Granted, if one, one person says something off the wall one time, that may not be the moment to give these places a call. But... If it's a lot of little things adding up, or even if it's a couple big things that you're really suspicious of, you can call Crime Stoppers USA 
It's 1-800-222-TIPS. That's T-I-P-S. You can look them up on their website, crimestoppersusa.org. Or if you feel that it's something really, really dangerous to you right away, please call the National Domestic Violence Hotline at 1-800-799-7233, which is 1-800-799-SAFE. That's about all I have for you guys today. Now here's Captain Sensible, and I will yak at you next time on It's All Relative. <laughs> <laughs>